0: Heavenly Father, thank you for your promise to be with us in every situation in life. Thank you that you are indeed the faithful one, that you are our rock in times of trouble and that you encourage us and want us to learn more of your truth. We pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you will speak to us now and encourage us in the knowledge of your love for us, that we may grow in love for one another and our service of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been a while. I haven't preached at the evening service since I don't know when. Um, But I can remember when I first came um, six years ago, um, I preached and Anne told me what she thought thought about it afterwards. You probably can't remember what you said, Anne, I was quite pleased with the response I got and then I spoke to Mike about three or four weeks later and I'm surprised I'm still here uh, preaching to you tonight but it shows how desperate Mike is that I'm on tonight. Um, when you're a preacher or a leader and you're told that the congregation is half what it normally is, you, you sort of get a bit paranoid, is it, is it down to me? But then I thought, well, actually, it wasn't published in advance that I was preaching, so you can't say it's because I'm preaching tonight that the congregation's half what it normally is. Uh, Indeed, the same was true this morning. It was about half what it would normally be because so many people are away on holiday. Anyway, enough rambling. Um, I read uh, about three weeks ago an article online, um, a very good article. It said... um, it was entitled, Seven Things That Non-Believers Think About Christians. Seven Things That Non-Believers Think About Christians. I want to just pick on three of them. Christians, it said, are against more things than they're for. And the person picked up this comment. It just seems to me that Christians are mad at the world and mad at each other. Well, that may be true. They're so negative, this person went on to say, that they seem unhappy. I've no desire to be like them or say, stay upset all the time. Well, I don't feel upset all the time. I get angry when I see things that aren't right. But I'm not upset. But maybe it's true that that's our, the perception that people have of us. This was another comment that was made. Some Christians try to act as though they've no problems at all. And the person went on to say, Harriet works in my department. She's one of those Christians who seem to have a mask on. I'd respect her more if she didn't put on such an axe. I know better. I don't see much difference in the way Christians live compared with others. I really can't tell what a Christian believes because he doesn't seem much different from other people I know. Now that's quite a challenging comment to make. Um, what is it that makes us different as Christians from those with whom we work, with whom we share uh, a relationship in whatever that way that may be? I can remember I actually saw Songs of Praise tonight from Keswick Convention. It was great. It was Stuart Townend leading the worship. And I remember about 44 years ago, 45 years ago, Herbert Cragg who was a great Keswick preacher, looking ahead to the future and saying that he believed in about 40 years' time, remembering this was 45 years ago, he said, I believe that the only difference between Christians and non-Christians will be that Christians don't live together before marriage. Well, 40 years on, one can say that that isn't always the case, but what is it that makes us different from other people that we know? What makes us different as Christians? I think one of the clues lies in the, in the title for tonight's uh, sermon, which is about fellowship. What does fellowship mean? Well, people go to various clubs or are members of different societies where they find what they would call the quality of fellowship. And there's a, a social interaction that goes on in those clubs and those organisations. And I had a very interesting conversation with a member of the congregation after this morning service who happened to mention uh, the, Mace, the Masons and the fact that they are a very a close group of people who find great fellowship with each other and who do an awful lot of good work in the, uh, in the world around us. But the fundamental difference between... A secular club and an organization such as the Masons is that Jesus isn't the center of their organizations. But clubs often around revolve around social interaction and people find great benefit from that social interaction. We as Christians enjoy the social interaction that we have with each other. Though when you're suffering from hearing loss it becomes quite difficult to socially interact with people and you can become a bit isolated. But if you're involved in a club or a society, there's a financial implication to that uh, membership. You pay uh, a um, a contribution towards the running of that society. And as Christians, we, as members of the congregation, have a financial implication That we support the work of God here through our giving. So there are similarities between clubs and the church and that can be a bit disheartening because if we look at it through society's eyes of an unchurched person who is seeking friendship and fellowship and companionship in a larger group setting they look around and they see the opportunities for fellowship available Elsewhere than the church. So what makes the church distinctive? What makes us as Christians? Distinctive in the way that we live and work and act why choose the church? I was interested um, a few weeks back to hear a retired Dean of a Cathedral speaking about his work as a Dean and He was saying as is documented that attendance at cathedrals is actually on the rise And when we were questioning him about this, he said, well, he said, I'm sure it's in the response to the fact that a lot of churches have become very chummy and pally, and people come to the cathedral because they prefer to be an isolated worshipper, to leave the worship and go on their way without any social interaction. And so some of us who were pastorally minded asked, well, what happens if they meet a problem? To which his reply was, well, They know where we are, they can come and find us, rather than being active in looking out for people who are in need. What is it about the fellowship of the church that makes it stand out above all the other offerings? What should be different about us as a church? And I would suggest that this passage in Thessalonians that we looked at a few moments ago, and if you want to turn to it, it's on page one thousand. 187 deals with this issue of fellowship and the difference that uh, we can make as Christians to those who might come in to our worship those that we meet Paul had a tremendous relationship with this church at Thessalonica in Greece and Greece is going through a crisis and the church at Thessalonica was going through a crisis just after Paul had spent three weeks preaching and teaching there. And the crisis was that they were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. And Paul was anxious about them because he'd set up the church and the ministry had been very successful. People had come to faith in the Lord Jesus and they were converted from being Jews and from being pagans, into faith in Christ. But Paul was driven out of the city, and on Paul's departure he was concerned for these new converts. Would they stay faithful in spite of the persecution that they were suffering? And so to find out, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to see how the church was doing. And so in verses 6 to 9, this is what Paul says... Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love, verse 6. I'll abbreviate it slightly. In all our distress and persecution, we are encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? So, This was a tremendous blessing for Paul, the message that Timothy brought back, that the Thessalonians, in spite of the persecution, were actually growing in faith and maturing and witnessing. And as a minister of the gospel, Paul found it quite difficult sometimes. By his own admission, he was in distress and struggling against persecution. And for those of us who've been in parish ministry and other forms of ministry... There are times when it's really tough going and I know uh, that Mike, our vicar, had a really tough year last year for various reasons and so he needed that refreshment of the month off in January in order to recover his vision and his energy and his enthusiasm. When he came back, he found that the church hadn't died but was continuing to worship God and the teaching was still going on and it was a tremendous encouragement to him. And so when Paul uh, sends Timothy to Thessalonica and Timothy returns with this great message, Paul was preaching and teaching in Corinth, which was a tough place, a depressing place, and he brings this fantastic message back that the Thessalonian Christians are growing in faith. While it was true that people were coming to faith and the ministry was making a real impact, the difficulties that Paul was experiencing were making it difficult for him to see the blessings. As I said, it happens in ministry. And sometimes we only see the things that are wrong rather than the blessings that come. How easy it is to focus on what's wrong rather than the way that God is blessing people. And Paul is Feeling like that. He's seeing the flaws and not the blessing until Timothy arrives back from Thessalonica. And the message that Timothy brings is described in 3 verse 6 as good news. Now, I don't know what you think of as good news, but when Paul teaches about good news, he's actually teaching that Jesus Christ is Lord and Saviour and died and rose again and is alive to be our friend and our Saviour. That was the good news that he preached. But here in this context, the same word is used. That's good news. Well, I've received about you. It's my salvation, if you like. It's brought a transformation in my ministry. So that's the way that he looks on the Thessalonians as a tremendous encouragement to him in his ministry, a means of uplifting him in times of difficulty. And Paul felt invigorated by that and it's that sort of invigoration that we should still be finding within our church fellowship. Because as Christians, we rejoice when there is success. How do we quantify success? Well, that's difficult to, to explain in many ways. But God is at work. He's changing people's lives. People are being healed. People are being blessed. And yet we find sometimes we focus on the on the things that might not be going quite right and forget what God is doing and unlike a club where the members are not affected by the success of others whereas we as Christians are blessed by the success of others and blessed by seeing God at work how many Pompey fans for example I'm sorry to speak about football, but I wonder how many Pompey fans rejoice when Southampton beat their team that they've been playing. They only drew today, but if Southampton were to have won, would Pompey fans be out celebrating tonight? Of course they wouldn't. They're no interest in what happens up the road at Southampton. Bournemouth won yesterday. Oh, so what? And that's the difference between being a member of the church and being a member of a club or or group of organization, that we rejoice when God blesses. How many England cricket fans will be toasting Australia's success in the fifth test? None of them, I suspect, but they'll be very pleased at some of the performances of the Australians and devastated that we were so rubbish. As a church, we rejoice together over God's grace Paul was able to see past the problems, to rejoice that God was blessing the Thessalonians and that God was at work and that the ministry he'd set up was successful. And it's that kind of attitude that we need sometimes, and it's not always an easy attitude to sustain, especially because of the world in which we live, but we need to be encouraged by seeing God at work When we face difficulty, we sometimes think, well, what's God doing in this situation? We see God working in someone else's life, and we're inclined to feel, well, if God is working for that person, why isn't he doing it for me? But the truth is that God is there. We just have to be aware of him and trust him and hold on to his offer to be with us, to be our counsellor, as John's Gospel told us a few moments ago, the Holy Spirit with us. Success elsewhere spurs us on and there are some great churches in this diocese and around the country. The secular press would have us believe the church is dying. Yes it is in some areas but in other places it's growing and lives are being transformed. But They don't want to print that because it doesn't suit their agenda. But sometimes it's easy to become jealous of the success of others. I've ministered in lots of different churches. It's been my privilege to do so through the years. And some of them have been very small in number. I know numbers aren't everything, and it's commitment to Christ that matters most. But when you're a congregation of 12, it's really tough when you see a congregation of our size. And I try not to mention where I come from because I say, Oh, you're from St. Jude's. Oh, St. Jude's. Because St. Jude's has a reputation out there as being a church that's thriving, and in many ways it is. It could be worse. It could be even better. But God is at work, and we rejoice in that. I was thrilled to hear of a church where five believers' baptisms took place in the sea. The individuals were led to put their trust in Christ Having completed the Christianity Explored course, which introduces people to the person of Jesus through a study of Mark's Gospel, it's a very good course in introducing people to Jesus. And in times when we are inclined to feel envious of the way that God is at work in others, we have to trust that God is working in us and we're different from a club in the sense that as a church we rejoice in what god is doing in the lives of others and it's that quality of fellowship that makes us different from a secular club i love the word for fellowship that's in the original greek it's the word koinonia i said this morning that i looked in vain in this passage from thessalonians for that particular word It's not there. And so I emailed Mike and said, where did you get this idea from? Uh, And he scratched his head. I could see him doing it, thinking, well, I did this a long time ago, and I've got no idea. He said, change the passage if you want to. And I didn't. I'm glad I didn't, because um, the actual idea of fellowship, although it's not mentioned as a word, is here in this passage. So we've got fellowship that comes from enjoying God's working in other people's lives and in other churches, and indeed in ours, we've also got the idea here of growing in love and holiness, which I'll come on to in a moment. When I was a slip of a lad about 10 years ago, uh, the word koinonia was often used of youth groups that met after church. It probably had the same meaning for people as it does when uh, they read the sign outside churches the parish Eucharist all welcome what does Eucharist mean to people out there what does koinonia mean to people out there it doesn't mean very much but actually when you boil it down the word koinonia literally means burden-bearing and it's here even more I believe we're part of the church rather than a secular club or society because we learn as Christians to bear one another's burdens. And that can be quite time consuming, it can be quite hard, and it can be quite challenging sometimes. Uh, True love takes the burden off people rather than increasing their burden. And I know sometimes I'm guilty of increasing the burden on those that I visit. And I said this morning, it just cropped up in my mind as I was speaking, that I visit uh, an elderly lady who's um, a senior member of the congregation on the 17th floor of a tower block, and the parking round her block of flats is very limited, and I get about an hour's parking. And I went into her and said, "I've only got an hour," which was the wrong thing to say, because I should have said to her, "I'm here. I'll listen to you." And she immediately said, "Oh, I'm sorry. You're so busy." And so i placed a burden on her rather than going to relieve her burden by allowing her to talk to me. It's very easily done. I didn't mean to do it and there was no hard feelings about it. But as Christians, we bear each other's burdens. And this is really the the idea of fellowship and this theme of love that comes across very clearly in all the prayers of Paul as he prays for the churches. Paul loves the churches and the people that he's planted. And that's got to be true of us as well, that we love the people who are members of our congregation in a way that goes beyond the kind of friendship that exists in a club and the fellowship that exists and the camaraderie to going beyond that, the extra mile to the kind of burden bearing that may take more time than we care to think but that's what God would have us do. Paul says in verse 12, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you, he says in brackets. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of God and and Father, our God and Father, when our Lord Jesus Christ comes with all his holy ones. Now, this is one of the rare places where the translation that we use, the New International Version, doesn't quite get the meaning right. Verse 13 actually isn't a separate request. It should mean, read, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, as a result of our deeper love for each other, it creates a sense of being blameless and holy in God's sight. Increasing our love for each other means putting ourselves in the second place. We, if uh, They couldn't turn to their fellow Christians for support in Thessalonica as they were being persecuted. To whom could they turn? And they found the support, especially when they were being bombarded by the world and persecuted for their faith in one another. And I don't think it's unfair to say that in the years to come, it's going to become much tougher than it is at the moment to be a Christian in our country. The secular agenda And the pressures that are on our nation are such that being a Christian will be much more difficult and we're going to need the support and care of one another in a way that perhaps we don't always do today because um, we're not under quite the same pressure as these Thessalonians were under but I believe it will happen in the future so we want God to increase our love for our fellow church members but also those beyond the Christian community and that fits very well with Christ's commands because in Matthew chapter 5 Jesus actually tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves and to love our enemies or as mr. Cameron will tell us um, love thy love thy neighbor that's the essence of Christianity he says well It's only in Yorkshire and Eton that they speak in those terms. We talk about loving our neighbours, or love your neighbour rather than love thy neighbour. And indeed the essence of Christianity is to love God first, and as we love God more, then we can love our neighbours more. But is it really possible to show unselfish concern to those who seem only interested in persecuting us, who don't seem interested in returning our love. Well, we don't find it easy to do that. We don't find it easy to love people who are difficult. But what Paul tells us here is that, actually, it's God's will that our love increases, that it should overflow. And so as we pray that, we can be sure that God will give it to us as we pray more that God will help us to reach out in love to others. And that's quite challenging for us because in our human nature, there are some people that we don't really want to care about for whatever reason that may be, things that may be holding us back from loving them. But our prayer that Paul prays for us as he prays for the Thessalonians is that deep down, our love will begin to overflow more and more, not only to the church members, but also to those beyond it deep down inside us. We'd rather go on holding a grudge though, than forgiving. I heard in the last couple of weeks of a small church where we've worshipped in the past, where a group of Christians organized a coffee morning at the time of the Nepal crisis, thinking that by organizing a coffee morning in the church, it would draw people in from the wider community on compassionate grounds. And it did. And they raised 500 pounds in a small village towards the Nepal crisis. But afterwards, sadly, there were recriminations because people said, who weren't involved in the coffee morning, oh, we should be raising this money for ourselves, not giving it away to Nepal. What's that got to do with us? A dreadful, dreadful thing to be saying. And it's caused such an upset and such a division in the church that people have left. Forgiveness and healing is to say the least some way off in that situation and it's desperate to listen to the story of those who've been so hurt by the negative response to this generous response to a crisis There's a, a grudge there and forgiveness is a long way off and the lack of love in that church is quite um, obvious but when we're part of a church whose agenda is set by a saviour who died for us and has our best interests as a priority, then our love for one another ought to grow. And so we're different from a, church, from a club because we enjoy the success of others and we find that we can bear one another's burdens in love. And we're held together by God's grace, not by rules and regulations, although we have rules and regulations that we seek to live by, but God's grace is such that it keeps us together. There are times when we bend and break the rules. There are times when we live in complete rebellion. And if the church was a club, we'd be thrown out of the membership a long time ago. But the church isn't a club. We welcome within the fellowship those who've had difficulties in the past we welcome them, those who've got difficulties in the present we welcome them we seek to love them and care for them and bear their burdens the church is a place where the grace of Jesus and his love for sinners all of which we are prevails so we move on to that verse which says we might be Establish our hearts blameless in holiness before our God. That's our state at the moment. We're blameless and holy before God as Christians. That's a fantastic statement, isn't it? That we are blameless and holy before God because of all that Jesus has done for us. And I have to remind myself of that because... At the staff dinner at Christmas, I was given a pair of socks, which I'm wearing tonight. Mr. Perfect, which of course, those of you know me, will say, yes, of course, that's true, Nigel, you are perfect. Well, in God's eyes, I am, but in reality, I'm not perfect. Um, It's possible to be called a saint in one email and in a conversation with someone else to be called Mr. Grumpy. That's me. I have an email from someone who calls me a saint. I meet her about once or twice a year, but someone who knows me well, and it's not her indoors, my wife, but I get called Mr. Grumpy. Um, And I find it's easier to be Mr. Grumpy than to be the saint, because my human nature Our human nature is to grumble about things. What do I grumble about? um, I grumble when feedback isn't taken seriously. I grumble when someone parks outside the Nationwide in Osborne Road and holds up all the traffic and goes to the ATM in uh, Nationwide and holds up the traffic coming the other way and makes me um, get quite grumpy. Anyway, the other day it happened um, and I tooted at this particular person and just at that moment the car started to roll backwards and this person, the driver, took their car out of the ATM, rushed back to the car, thanked me profusely for tooting because she thought I was tooting her because the car was rolling backwards when actually I was tooting through annoyance. And the bus driver who was coming the other way just sat there and shook his head. As this particular lady... um, Sorry, I didn't mean to mention the sex, but it could easily have been a man. She jumped in the car, put the handbrake on, and went back to the ATM. Now, I would have been so ashamed. I would have driven off. But no, she wanted her money out, and I got grumpy. And that's, that's me, sometimes. I'm sad to say, Mr. Grumpy. Yet, in God's eyes... I'm blameless, and uh, to use the words here, blameless in holiness. That's how God sees me, Mr. Perfect, not. <laughs> and when it says here, so that he may establish your hearts, blameless in holiness, heart here remains, uh, means the whole of our personalities. We learn that to love God with our hearts and our neighbours and ourselves, We have a firm foundation for life, established, as Paul says here, that our hearts may be established blameless in holiness. It's something that we aim at as Christians, to be blameless and holy, even though God recognizes us in that way. It's something that we should aim for. A bit hard for a Pompey uh, fan to be called a saint if they're a Christian Pompey fan, because Southampton are called saints, and Pompey fans and Southampton fans hate each other. And I was teasing a Pompey fan this morning by calling him a saint, and he was a bit, I can't, I'm not a saint. The word holy here describes God. God is holy, and as Christians, that's our goal, that's our aim, to be as holy as God is. And it means literally to try to be set apart for God and so dedicated to him that we become morally like him. Now, which club that you can think of ever invites its members to become holy? I can't think of one. Uh, Masons, as I've suggested, are very good philanthropists. Uh, My Engage Society, a model railway club, invites its members to enjoy playing trains. It doesn't say to be a member of this club, you've got to be holy but as Christians, we're called to be those who follow Christ and to become more like him. Paul doesn't leave the Thessalonians in any doubt about uh, the issues that he's confronting. And in the next chapter, which we haven't got time to go on to, he speaks about the issue of sexual immorality. Thessalonian Christians hadn't gone down that route, they weren't immoral, they hadn't fallen into the trap, but Paul warns them not to fall into the trap. Now we live in an age when the biblical understanding of morality is under attack more than it's ever been. And only this last week I heard on the news that 38 million people are signed up to a website that promotes marital infidelity. And it's not hard to understand that the biblical idea of marriage is under attack. In the last week, too, um, there's been a report published by someone that I got to know over the last two years, uh, a lovely Christian guy, a Scottish Presbyterian, called Andrew MacLean, who's reported on the sexual abuse in the Roman Catholic Church, which was followed by an apology by the Archbishop of uh, Scotland but also, which has been very hard for me to absorb, two Anglicans, married Anglicans, whom I was acquainted with in years gone by, have both been imprisoned for sexual abuse. And I read in the Church Times on Friday that the respect in which clergy once used to be held has almost evaporated because of the failures to pursue holiness by a small number. It's the bad apple, isn't it, in the midst. And whether we're ordained or lay, God requires a standard of us, of holiness, that belongs to God. And he wants us to live for him in a way that uh, brings him glory. It's hugely disappointing when people let the side down. But what of ourselves? How do we live, not just um, morally, we we have to look at the way that we live in terms of honesty and integrity in terms of reliability and trustworthiness and also in the use of our language i find sadly that there are many christians who just use the omg as a, a normal phrase and for me that's awful to hear people using god's name in the wrong way especially when they call themselves christians How are we different as Christians? We're different because we find fellowship together and rejoice in the success of God working in people's lives. We find, as Christians, that we love each other and that we bear each other's burdens. But we're also those who pursue holiness, recognizing that God recognizes us as blameless and holy in his sight, but pursue holiness and blamelessness in all our pursuits, in all our ways of actions. Moral living is a way of pleasing God. And Paul puts it like this in chapter 4, verse 1. We ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, and all the more, so as the day of the Lord's return grows ever closer. God calls us to holiness. He calls us to love. He calls us to rejoice and find fellowship in the Christian community that is different from anything else that we might experience. May God bless us and encourage us to find that fellowship and to enjoy his presence here. Amen. Now we're going to spend just a few moments in... Uh, prayer together.